Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. Throughout your whole career journey, you'll be thinking about growing your skills, advancing, changing, and even reinventing yourself. We want to help you do that, and we want to help you live your full potential. In every episode, we cover work and career topics that leverage my global HR leadership, and through interviews and discussions with other career experts and leaders from all over the world. Subscribe and visit us at modern-career.com and see our blog posts, career stories. We also offer coaching and workshops and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to Wisdom at Work. Our guest today is Chip Conley. Chip is a New York Times bestselling author and hospitality entrepreneur and executive who renewed himself in midlife by collaborating with the millennial co-founders of Airbnb to create the world's largest global hospitality brand. He was twice the age of the average Airbnb employee, which earned him the title Airbnb's Modern Elder. He was as curious as he was wise. He got to see the value of the intergenerational collaboration in a company that has now grown to be the most valuable hospitality company in the world. His recent best-selling book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, is a testament to rethinking the value of having five generations in the workplace and why more companies are doing their best to encourage their older workers to stay in the workplace longer. In 2018, he founded the Modern Elder Academy, the world's first midlife wisdom school, where attendees learn how to repurpose a lifetime of experience for the modern workplace. Chip is a recipient of hospitality's highest honor, the Pioneer Award, and was named the most innovative CEO in the San Francisco Bay Area by the San Francisco Business Times. He is a founder of the Celebrity pool toss that supports Bay Area families in the Tenderloin neighborhood where he opened his first hotel and San Francisco's Hotel Hero Awards as well. He holds a BA and an MBA from Stanford University and an honorary doctorate in psychology from Saybrook University. He serves on the board of Encore.org and the advisory board for the Stanford Center for Longevity. Thank you so much, Chip, for joining us today and for sharing your insights. Well, what a joy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you bet. And I hear you're in Baja, Mexico. Is that right where you are right now? Yes, Baja, California. So we're about an hour north of Cabo San Lucas on the Pacific Ocean. I do love being here. Excellent. Well, I'm going to start from the beginning, if we could. We'll come back. But I'm always fascinated, and I love to just get a little history. You were an entrepreneur at quite an early age, 26, I believe, and you founded Joy de Vivre Hospitality, where you took an inner city motel, I believe, which I'm guessing is in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, but you'll correct me. That's exactly right. And you turned it into the second largest boutique hotel brand in America, which is phenomenal. How did you do that? How did you get your start, come to focus on hospitality, and then achieve that at such a young age? I went to Stanford undergrad. I went to Stanford Business School. And soon after I graduated from business school, I was bored in the company I'd taken a job with out of business school. I enjoyed it, but I wanted something more creative. I was doing commercial real estate development. I was fascinated by this new trend in the hotel industry of boutique hotels, which uh, Ian Schrager and Bill Kimpton really started the trend. 
And that was a couple of years later. And I was like, okay, well, I know commercial real estate. How could I apply my commercial real estate background to a form of commercial real estate, which is really much more of a business than it is commercial real estate. And that's hotels. I bought a broken down pay by the hour motel in the Tenderloin in San Francisco. And that seems really difficult. It was, it still is. <laughs> Tenderloin's tough. Yeah. It's one of those few parts of San Francisco that in the last 35 years is not gentrified. What I loved about it was it was a 1950s motor lodge with all the rooms facing the pool. It was sort of classic Miami or Palm Springs. And so I started the company, called it Joie de Vivre because it means joy of life. That was our mission statement. Very few companies have a name that's also the mission statement. So we were creating joy of life for our employees first and our customers second. Long story short is 52 boutique hotels later, I, you know, 24 years later, I ultimately sold the company and Joie de Vivre is now called JDV and it's a Hyatt brand. I guess what I learned along the way is the most important thing, in my opinion, in creating a vibrant company that has a strong, sustainable, competitive advantage is how do you invest in culture? And uh, so I love the fact you have an HR background and that a lot of the listeners do because I've written five books on this topic, on the topic of sort of at the intersection of psychology and business. So I learned a lot in that process, especially around how do you create a leadership team, grow that? I have a real softness in my heart for middle managers because I, they get it from both sides. <laughs> and often they're the people who are the culture bearers in an organization. If something breaks down from a cultural perspective, it, yes, it absolutely can happen at the very senior levels. If a CEO is doing all kinds of terrible things, I mean, it's toxic for the culture. But from a systemic perspective, it's so important that the middle-level people and middle-level leaders in the company feel like their fingerprints are all over the culture and that they have influence on how that culture evolves over time. And so whether that was my experience there or there, then later, we'll talk about the fact that I helped the three founders of Airbnb grow their company. And culture was one of the key things that I focused on with them. You're so spot on with the middle managers. I think sometimes when we want to affect culture or lead change, we start top down or bottom up and then people go, oh, it's this frozen middle. And it's because we don't really think about the power of the middle manager. Not just the power, but the responsibilities and the stress. And there's so often when a middle manager has all of the responsibility, but no autonomy, <laughs> which is you know an incredibly frustrating situation. or they can see that the policies of the company or the culture of the company is inhibiting the organization from doing its best work as a company. So one of my favorite questions to ask anybody in the organization, but, but especially my direct reports is, how can I support you to do the best work of your life here at Airbnb or Joie de Vivre? And that question is helpful because what it does is it opens up a conversation that allows for the person, let's say it's a middle of a manager, to know that I want to support them. I want them to succeed. So interesting how many people think their boss or senior leadership wants them to fail. That doesn't make it easy on me as the CEO when I have failing managers or failing leaders. So that's one piece. Then the fact that I'm asking them to stretch to the best work of their life, I think it's important that they know that because we just don't want you to just mail it in. We really want you to like be engaged and feel like, this is a place where you will do the best work of your life. But I think the most important part of this question is the fact that I put this in their lap and I say, you know what? You're no longer the victim here. You're no longer the person who has no 
autonomy, no influence. I want you to talk to me if I'm your direct supervisor, if I'm your boss, talk to me. Or I want you to talk to your boss if I'm not your boss and tell them what, what do you need? And if that means, you know, instead of having a meeting with them for 30 minutes every other week, you need a meeting for an hour once a week, go ahead and say that's one of the six or eight or 14 things that you need and have that conversation because your boss, uh, me, if I'm your boss, may be more inclined to support most of the things on your list. Yes, there's some things that you may say on the list that can't be done, but at least the conversation can happen. And what, if, what I've seen it do is it creates agency. And agency is a really important piece of, I think, successful companies. It means that innovation can happen anywhere in the org. And it means that people feel a sense of both responsibility, accountability, or both of those, as well as autonomy. Dan Pink is on our one of our faculty members, MEA, Modern Knowledge Academy, which we'll talk about. And he's teaching on our upcoming course on purpose. It's an online course in his book, Drive, about how important autonomy is for people to have that sense of drive or that sense of motivation. I just want to click down on one thing because in this piece of your own life journey, you're young, you're going to do something really a bit risky and entrepreneurial. And to me, the way you spoke about it, you'd have to have had a fair amount of confidence at that age, do you think? And right, and you already got to name your brand the exact mission. You already got purpose. So what is it about, this is not you know you looking back and you've learned all these things. That was at a really young age. I will say that confidence and chutzpah, they don't sound alike, but they both start with the same letter, C. I think it, it wasn't so much just a chutzpah. I think it was also maybe a certain naivete. It can help, yes. <laughs> it does help. It's part of the reason why, I, frankly, it's part of the reason Airbnb exists as a company. And I had a lot of people coming and staying with me in San Francisco. And they were all in their mid-20s to mid-30s. And I, when I was 26 starting this company, what I knew is that they weren't staying in hotels. Now, if this was 20 years later, they might be staying in Airbnbs. But at that point, they were not staying in hotels. I had a focus group of one, the person who was sleeping on my couch. <laughs> and I can have conversations with them. And what I got from that was this idea that there was a real niche that was missing a product. And that was generally younger people who wanted to stay in a fun, hip hotel that was sort of cheap, chic, um, not, not expensive, but had a little bit of style. And that was very well dovetailing with the whole boutique hotel movement. I figured, gosh, at 26, if I fail, you know, in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, if you fail, people give you a, an attaboy or a thumbs up because it's sort of part of the process of becoming wise. So I, I think I, had, I didn't have a lot of fear of failure. But then let's talk about Airbnb. So when I joined Airbnb, I was 52 years old. So I started my company when I was 26. Now it's tw I'm, not, I'm now twice the age. At 52, I'm joining a company where the average age is 26. The average age at Airbnb almost 10 years ago when I joined was half my age. The founders started the company when they were 24 and 26, the three of them. And they had, by the time I came along, they were 28 to 30 years old. I was going to report to, so Brian Chesky approached me. He's the co-founder and CEO. He approached me and he said, listen, we've, we've sort of been doing our research on you and, and everybody talks about you being the person who can help us become a hospitality company because at this point, we're just this little tech startup. And 
said, okay, that sounds good. You know, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, I'd like to have have you be my in-house mentor, but also I want you to basically be in charge of hospitality for the company. I said, okay, what does that mean? And he says, well, we have all these hosts around the world. So I want you to be, help them to be great hosts. And then I want you to like, and he started talking about 10 other things he wanted me to do. I was like, okay, I'll give you eight hours a week. (laughs) We almost arm wrestled to get to 15 hours a week. And about three weeks into it, I said to Brian, this is a 15-hour-a-day job, not 15-hour-a-week. And he looked at me and said, well, yeah, but now you're here. And so I, I was like at this crossroads. Okay, do I leave now? Because this is way, way more intense than I was expecting. Or do I stay? And I stayed. But I, after about a month or two, I said to my father, I'm scared. I think I might fail here. I am At that point now, I was the head of global hospitality and strategy. Ultimately, I was in charge of HR. Well, not exactly in charge of HR. I was in charge of learning and development. There was no HR person leader when Kent joined the company. So I really helped lead HR for a period of time as well, which, which helped me to create the culture, some of the culture ideas for the company. Or it was, I was co-creating it, really. I, that's the better way to put it. So long story short is I was fearful. My, and I said to my dad, I am, I'm scared that in my early 50s, my last gig, my last career move might be something that where I'm not suitable for this because I, I've i never worked in a tech company and now I'm helping lead a tech company in many ways. And so my dad said, how do you turn your fear into curiosity? And it was a, a great line. And I, that's what I started to do. I started to look at how could I be curious? And, and that's when a couple of months later, the founders pulled me aside and said, Chip, we hired you for your knowledge, but what we've really gotten is your wisdom. I was like, oh, I never really thought of the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And then they said, you're our modern elder. And I said, oh, I don't want to be your modern elder. (laughs) That sounds like, you know, know, AARP's magazine or something. And then they said, no, we're not saying you're elderly, but you're an elder. But you're not the elder of the past who was, you know, regarded with reverence. You're like relevant. It's not about reverence. It's relevance. And and that's that's when they said the, the tagline that really worked for me. And they said... Chip, a modern elder is someone who's as curious as they are wise. Okay. Well, my dad told me, what about curiosity? And now they're saying I'm as curious as I am wise a couple months later. And it's like, okay, I will be your modern elder and I will own that label and let's see where it goes. And so over the next four years full-time, an additional three and a half years as a strategic advisor, so seven and a half years, I mentored over 100 people in the company, uh, including Brian, the CEO. And I still actually act a little bit of an, a mentor role to him, even though I'm not formally a, a strategic advisor anymore. But in those 100 relationships, I probably learned as much from these younger people as, I, as they did from me. I, often, I would call it the EQ for DQ trade alliance. They would get some of my emotional intelligence, especially around leadership, and I would get some of their some of their digital intelligence, their DQ. So it it turned out. I think mutual mentorship is the number one way that companies in the 21st century can create an ROI on their learning and development. And I think matching mentors in 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 companies where one of the let's say it's me, I know a lot about leadership, but there's someone younger than me who could teach me about how to use my iPhone better. They want to learn exactly the opposite. They want to learn about leadership and they'd like to teach something around digital intelligence. Well, those kind of relationships are valuable. And Deloitte has shown that millennials who have a mentor within the organization 
are more than two times as likely to stay five years in the organization than millennials who do not have a mentor. Creating mentorship relationships in organizations is not just a great way to do knowledge and wisdom transfer, but it is also a way to boost retention, which of course, during this era that we're living in, is exceptionally important. On that mutual mentorship and the whole space you're talking about, and you mentioned Deloitte, where do you think we are in terms of organizations really embracing this concept and making it easy to do it? Where are we and who's doing it well? I think it's informally, it's happening. Formally, I don't know. I would say having, I've been lucky enough to keynote the SHRM, the Society of HR Management Conference a couple of times. And and I talk about mentorship a lot. And I, I do see some new products coming out like Mentor Cloud and things like that, where there are like software applications that allow you to embed in your organization mentorship matching opportunities. And I think that's great. I think Zoom has actually accelerated this because I think one of the things about mentorship around companies is they've usually thought that the relationship had to be two people in the same office. And it doesn't have to be that way. So if you you find that the perfect mentor match in a big global company is someone in London, a young person in London who wants to learn from an older person in Houston because there's a yin and a yang in terms of what they can learn from each other. Well, in this era of Zoom and all the other apps we have for video conferencing, that's very doable. I think the key, the, the challenge is that often companies don't say, here are the best practices in, mentor, in a mentor relationship. And some companies do it. And I think that's to be improved. I actually think one of the company, Airbnb did something interesting. And that was to actually add a new question on their um, employee satisfaction surveys, the work climate surveys. And the question was a qualitative question. And the question was, beyond your boss, who in the company do you seek out uh, for wisdom or advice? You know, if you're a large company, you get a almost a, a heat map of where wisdom resides in the organization. And once you have that, what it allows you to do as a company is to say, okay, here's our top 10 or top 20 people in the company in terms of who is perceived as wise that a person in the company would want to approach. In fact, what it does is it, it exposes informal mentor relationships that already exist. And then what you could say is to those maybe top 10 people, let's say, Let's say the average person in that group has been in the company for 10 years or longer. Well, you can start to say, okay, what are some other opportunities that we could consider for you for career path growth that would be good for the company? Because many companies are exceptional about their learning and development for onboarding and for people 40 and younger or younger than 40, but not so good about the older than 40 group. And, And therefore, those people actually leave or or they actually feel less motivated or engaged. So what we found is it was a great way to actually take some of our great informal wisdom leaders in the company, or what I, what I like to call not knowledge workers, but wisdom workers, and take these wisdom workers and give them the opportunity to, to learn how to coach, for example, and how to become an in-house coach in the company. Some of the people actually took, that, took us up on that, and it was amazing. Um, and frankly, we actually saved some money relative to the outside coaches we we're using. And And having embedded coaches in the company meant a lot better opportunity for them to be accessible to the people they were coaching. So all of that was, I think, really important. And I I think most companies don't take that step. So we're talking about it as a relationship matching one-to-one. 
I assume it's great to have multiple mentors and to, because like you say, your EQ, DQ, somebody could need something else and they get lots of different bits of wisdom from lots of different people. Yeah, I think there's two kinds of mentorship relationships and some of them are absolutely a hybrid. There's a performance relationship, there's a development relationship. The performance relationship in that kind of relationship, if it's a traditional mentor relationship, it means the person who is the mentee wants to learn knowledge from the mentor. So the person asking the questions is the mentee. I want to learn about the hospitality industry and how hotels do their pricing. Because I am one of the people who's helping hosts at Airbnb do pricing and I want to understand how, hotel, how hotels do that. Yes, let's, let's set up that mentor relationship. Let's have three meetings over the next three months to talk about it. And that's the finite nature of that relationship. Those rela- you can have a lot of those relationships because people are just coming to basically tap into your know-who and your know-how. But the other kind of a relationship is a developmental relationship. And that's what a lot of us think about more. It's, it's like, like, you know, Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway. He was the intern, but he became the mentor. And the bottom line is his relationship with her was more developmental as a human. And in terms of broader skills that are way beyond just knowledge. And in fact, in a relationship like that, the person asking the questions is not the mentee. It's the mentor and that a great coach, a great mentor. In, who's looking at not knowledge transfer, but wisdom development. That kind of person is going to probably ask really beautiful catalytic questions full of appreciative inquiry, which is a, a form of how you can ask questions that we teach at our Modern Elder Academy. So understanding whether it's a performance relationship or a developmental one is helpful because the only way, the only way I could have over 100 mentees at Airbnb was the fact that 80% of them were on the performance side, meaning it was a knowledge transfer. And only 20% were the more long-term kind of relationship where it was more developmental of them and their not their toolbox of skills and knowledge, but more their, their embodiment of leadership and humanity. Your new book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, I know it was inspired from your experiences as both a mentor and this unexpected intern at Airbnb. So tell us some of the highlights, if you would. Well, I coined a new term called a mentern, someone who's a mentor and an intern at the same time. That would, that described me. I was constantly both learning and teaching and being that both curious and wise person at the same time. And knowing the alchemy, I think one of the things we get better at as we get older is knowing when do you need a little bit more of this or that? When do I need to be the introvert versus the extrovert? When do I need to be full of gravitas versus levity, you know, humor? And I would say some of the key points in the book, which ultimately led to us creating a place called the Modern Elder Academy down here in Mexico on a beachfront, but also with two campuses opening soon in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I think it's really important to start by saying when you're coming into a new role, and especially if you're older than other people, You've got to start with the place of like, how do I evolve? It's not like, okay, I'm just going to do here what I've done everywhere else. No, I mean, at Airbnb, I was like now mentoring the CEO, but I also reported to him and he was 21 years younger than me. So what is, what's it like to report to someone who's the age of my son? And yet I'm also mentoring him. And so I had to evolve because I'd been CEO of my own company for 24 years. 
So that was a that was a first step, and I, I had to really right size my ego. I had to be clear that I was no longer in charge, but I was the one who was the conduit. You know, I was no longer the can-do-it person. I was the conduit person. I was channeling good leadership skills to these young co-founders and especially to Brian, the CEO. So I also had to be like really had a huge appetite for learning, being a beginner again and open to being the most curious person in the room, but leading with questions. And I think that was helpful. And it often led to me leading with a question that showed blind, blind spots in the company. I think then it's very much about collaborating and Google's research in their Project Aristotle, it showed that the number one quality of effective teams in Google globally was psychological safety, meant that part of what I needed to do on the teams was to create a sense that I was not a competitor. Because, you know, if you have a lot of young people and they're all competing to be the smartest person in the room, and then I was like, okay, I'll be the most curious and wise person in the room. And I'll be the one who doesn't have my ego like showing all the time in terms of like, I'm going to outcompete this person, et cetera. What ended up happening was I was the confidant. I was the person that a lot of people came to, which led to a lot of mentorship relationships. You know, sometimes it, it strikes me as that someone might think you could be judging. You, you must have all the answers or you've done this. And can I feel safe to show that I'm learning too on this team? And I don't know. I think because of the fact that I was often showing up in meetings, asking a lot of questions and being open to showing that I didn't know. As one person said to me, Chip, before you got here, this place was full of know-it-alls and you're helping us to become learn-it-alls. Learn-it-alls was his, his way of saying, we're constantly learning. Carol Dweck from Stanford has wrote the book Mindset and it's a big part of my approach to leadership. How do you move from a fix to a growth mindset? That was a lot of what I did and so many other things. I mean, it was my role had a lot of intangibles built into it. How do you create a culture that is going to be vibrant and become a magnet for people? Um, how are we a disruptor? We were obviously a disruptor in, in the hospitality industry, but how are we seen brand-wise and culturally as different than the Uber disruptor? How could Airbnb instead be someone, an organization dedicated to trying to make the world a better place? And and yes, be a disruptor at the same time. And and the good news there is that everybody certainly is a disruptor. So therefore, there's always going to be people who are not happy with the disruptor. But Airbnb and a lot of the things it's done in more recently, you know, giving refuge to Ukrainian refugees for free and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, the company has shown that it's not Uber. <laughs> but when I joined the company 10 years ago, Uber and Airbnb were the darlings of the sharing economy and everybody sort of put them in the same sentence. But that doesn't happen anymore so much. I think that a lot of the value that uh, a modern elder can bring to a workplace is in those intangibles, but it shows up ultimately tangibly because Uber and WeWork and Theranos all have had just salacious miniseries, fun, somewhat fictional, but somewhat real TV series about them recently. And what they all could have used was a modern elder embedded in the leadership team. So I think there's a lot of value but I also think there's, again, it's, this is not the traditional elder relationship where all the power rests with the old people. That's not the world we live in, especially if you're in a, if you're in a technology or a digital company. Absolutely. So you founded the Modern Elder Academy in 18, I believe. What are you seeing? Because obviously, shortly after you founded it, the world and still is going through some pretty tumultuous times. What are you finding? And I'm so curious too, are, 
people going on their own? Are companies sending people? I think you've had 2,000 graduates. Or- yeah, 2,200 alums now from 35 countries. We have 26 regional chapters around the world. Um, so it's, it's become a bit of a movement. And yes, it is a combination of paid for themselves and companies who send their employees. So what is the Modern Elder Academy? It is the world's first midlife wisdom school dedicated to helping people cultivate and harvest their wisdom. Average age of the people who are in the program are, is 54, but we've had about 14% of our people who come are millennials. I mean, who would expect a millennial to come to a Modern Elder Academy, also known as MEA? They're as, just as interest in, interested in learning about cultivating wisdom as maybe someone older. So the four key curriculum pillars are how do we reframe our, our relationship with aging? Secondly, how do we shift to a growth mindset? Again, what I was talking about a minute a moment ago. Thirdly is how do you navigate midlife transitions, whether that's becoming an empty nester, changing careers, changing jobs within a company. We don't give people a whole lot of understanding about the three stages of any transition. We go into depth on that. And then finally, something called regeneration, which is how do you regenerate your purpose, your soul, your body? through wellness practices, et cetera. Yeah, we're in the business of, mo- of minting modern elders. It's been exciting to see that companies are noticing it and companies that have long-term uh, leaders in their organizations who they want to just sort of re-inspire. So instead of having them feel like they have to resign, well, how about re-inspire? And that's part of what we're doing. And of course, we also have online programs on purpose and transitions that help people to in an eight-week online course, feel renewed. Chip, you wrote an article that was titled, The Best Age to Be an Effective Leader. Some thoughts on that. It could be at any point in your life, but I, I think one of the things that we don't recognize often in the business world, organizational world, is that if you're able to develop your wisdom over the course of your life, what that means is your metabolizing experience and then distilling it into compassion as a leader. And I think some of the best leaders we know today in the organizational world are compassionate leaders, partly because they're very wise. So I do think that while wisdom does not always correlate with age, because there are people we know who are 35, old souls, and they, over the course of their time in the working world, have become quite wise. And we know people 65 who've never figured that out. But there's the opportunity, a greater opportunity to metabolize experience, the more experience you have. And so I do think that uh, there's the real opportunity for people to become better and better leaders. Um, Because one thing that actually does grow with age, and I did write a, a recent wisdom well, that's my daily blog post on the five signs that your EQ is growing as you age. And that one is really true. It's like emotional intelligence has the capacity to grow as you age. IQ doesn't grow much as you age. So long story short is I do think that someone who has has really metabolized that experience, they've learned from their experiences along the way, they've become a more compassionate leader as a result. They're what Jim Collins used to talk about is the the leader who's full of ambition, humility plus ambition. Um, Those kind of leaders are Few and far between, but actually what we really need to do as organizations is figure out how do you develop more of them. And some of them are in their 40s and 50s and 60s. They're there, but organizations need to give more attention to those kind of leaders 
not just their people in their 20s and 30s. You've shared so much wisdom with us. I'm going to give you an opportunity. Is there some last bit of advice, maybe something that's guided you through your own career journey, something that stayed with you? I know you've written also on advice that you wish you'd been given when you were <laughs> every decade, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. But is there some one or two bits of advice that you'd, you'd share with us? One of them, and I, it relates to uh, one of the books I wrote, which is called Emotional Equations, might relate to a equation on anxiety. Actually, in, in that advice, when I your 40s, I, I had a, an emotional equation called disappointment equals expectations minus reality. And I think that's a very obvious one. If your expectations are too high, you're likely to be disappointed. But this one's actually a little bit more subtle. And it's anxiety equals uncertainty times powerlessness. So what does that mean? It means that when you're in an anxious era, as many of us are these days, the two things you need to look at are, what is it that you don't know? What's uncertainty? And what is it that you don't feel like you can control or influence? And I think as a leader, one of the best things we can do during anxious times is to be as transparent as possible so there's less uncertainty. So people can feel like, I understand what's going on here. And then secondly, how do we help people to feel that sense of agency and autonomy in what they can control? What's their sphere of influence? And so I think it's really good advice for, pe for people at any age, but especially if you're a leader running an organization that is full of anxiety because your industry is going through change, the pandemic's affected things, whatever it is. And then if I had one other piece of advice that would be, and this is particularly for men, learn to invest in emotional insurance. We're really smart about buying property and liability insurance for our homes. We're not as wise about the idea of emotional insurance. What, what do I mean by that? And women do this so much better than men. It means having an emotional safety net of people in your life with whom you can converse that help you to be a little more objective when you're going through the most challenging times. Not just more objective, but also more supportive. What often find, we see is that when times are difficult, people sort of, you know, sort of create a bunker mentality and they might have a, you know, a spouse or a friend they talk with, but they, they don't have a broader collection of people. And what you need to do is invest in those emotional insurance. You pay property and liability insurance for the rainy day. And so you build relationships with people for your own personal rainy day. And I think that has helped serve me well when I've gone through some difficult times. I love that. And I, I think that applies to everyone. I think that's brilliant. Chip, thank you so much. I know you're at the Academy now. So for being here with us and sharing so much with us, it's been really inspiring. I look back my own journey. It's inspiring for all of us to develop as much wisdom as we can through the course of our lives. And then as you say, become a modern elder and share and stay curious. We will definitely check out your book. I have. It's brilliant. It'll be in our show notes. So there's a lot more to learn. Thank you so much. Thank you. And check out my, wis my Wisdom Well Daily blog if you want, uh, because it's free and it's, there's a daily, a daily little message that's practical. It's not just inspirational. There's practical advice there as well. Fantastic. Thank you, Chip. All right. Thank you. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at modern underscore career. We'll include all the sources noted in this episode in our show notes. 
look forward to talking again very soon. Thank you.